Father, these are your precious words to us. Very words of your Son spoken and preserved for your church forever. To encourage us and rebuke us. To exhort us and correct us. And, and we thank you that as you do both, you do it with great patience and mercy towards us. So we pray that you would be merciful. Merciful to our cold hearts this morning. To awaken them by your spirit. To hear with ears to hear. To see your words for what they are for our lives. To repent and change. To grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, may it not be that your words are used to no advantage for our souls this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Make these words useful in our lives. That Jesus Christ might be honored and that we might find ourselves and that you might find us with faith in the last day. Lord, minister to each hungry heart here and to each of your sheep just as they need. Father, I pray that you would protect those from drawing conclusions that aren't true of them. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us exactly where we are in truth. Father, may we never fear preaching and proclaiming your words just as they are on the page that you have given to us. We thank you that you have given us words that are strong and words sometimes that are hard for us to hear, that you might stir us up in our fear of God and in holy affections and in the pursuit of holiness and godliness and righteousness. And may at the end be glory and praise in King Jesus. Thank you, Father. In your son's name. Amen. Well, before we turn to the text, we're going to be in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and find your way there. And um, this is a parable of Jesus, and it's a parable with a purpose, as you'll see in just a moment. And, uh, but as we, before we actually turn to it, I just want to ask a question. I want to ask a question. What is money good for? What is money good for? You know, some actually think money is actually evil. And uh, so, to those who think money is actually evil, poverty becomes righteousness. Um, That's kind of the cultural milieu in which we live. You know, money is evil, and and that's just not true. Right? Um, So, but what is money good for? And it's an important question because the Lord Jesus talks about money all the time, and, and this sermon doesn't even have anything to do with money. But he talks about money all the time. And so, why does Jesus talk about money all the time? Well, there's different answers, right? In Scripture, we know that um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know? And so, um, we know that we are to store up treasures in heaven with the use of our money. We know that money is a God-given tool. It's a tool for ministry, you know, to provide for our families, to provide for others, to be generous to God's world, both the saved and the lost. Um, We know that um, uh, money is also something that we tend to love more than we ought to love. And just as any other gift of God is, we make it um, the gift giver. 
We make it the gift giver. And we look to money to be our savior. And, um, but it's interesting to think about what money is good for because uh, it's a tool that God has given in his world for us to trade and buy and sell, you know. And, um, but it's another question altogether to ask, what is money best for? What is money best for? And it's important that we separate what is good from what is best, especially as we walk into this parable. Because the answer to the question may be something we have never actually thought about. And it's not even a hard answer. But it may just be something we've never thought about. And um, what Jesus is doing as we walk into this parable is he's, he's using something very common to us, as he always does, which is kind of engaging in business with um, money that he entrusts to us. But his point isn't the stock market, you know? His point isn't, you know, what's the next crypto coin to jump into to increase your money. His point isn't, you know, how can I just buy and sell and trade in the marketplace to increase what God has given me, even if that may be a very good thing. That's not his point. His point is something far greater than that reality, and it's, it's really the answer to the question, what is money best for? And what I want you to see as we walk into the parable, because remember this, remember this, remember this always about everything in God's world. From him, through him, and to him are all things. From him, through him, and to him are all things. And so what's supposed to happen as Jesus tells this parable and as we hear this parable is we're supposed to think about our money and how it actually, as we constantly use it, Every single day, you're thinking about money in one way, shape, or form. You're using money in one way, shape, or form. And it's supposed to cause you to think things about Jesus and the Christian life. It's supposed to cause you to think about spiritual truths and realities in the Christian life. It's supposed to point you to Jesus. All of what you're doing with money, it's supposed to point you to Jesus into the nature of the Christian life. You say, well, how, how would that possibly be so? What is it supposed to do? Well, in the parable, we're supposed to, what we're supposed to see is that um, our king is gone. He's ascended to glory. He's not here. Right? And he hasn't established the fullness of his kingdom. And so the disciples are left waiting in the meantime for the king to come, and what they're supposed to do with what Jesus has entrusted to them is to use it and engage in business. But the point isn't just to use money to engage in business. The point is Jesus has entrusted many gifts to his disciples and many benefits to his disciples to be used faithfully, to be used faithfully until he comes. And some will use it faithfully. And some will revolt against the king and squander every opportunity that they've ever had and blame Jesus for it in the end. And so the point is, as common as of her practice is for you to use money to engage in business and trade and um, you know, increase and all the ways and things that you think about the use of money is how you're supposed to think about your doings as a disciple. 
constantly working as a disciple to be faithful to Jesus. Constantly using your gifts to be faithful to Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. Okay? All right. We'll close in prayer and go home. The point is, money points to our responsibility as disciples while we wait for his kingdom. And I think Jesus uses money because it's just such a constant reality in the function of our life that this is how a disciple thinks and functions constantly about their faithfulness to Jesus, constantly about being useful to Jesus, constantly about using the things that are benefits of God to his people to be faithful to Jesus. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And the context here is Zacchaeus and what the disciples think actually about what Jesus is doing. Zacchaeus has just been converted. Blind Bartimaeus before that was just converted. And just before that, Jesus told of his death the third time. But remember that phrase, these things were hidden from them, right? And I said they're hidden from them because they just want the kingdom to come now in its fullness with Jesus heading into Jerusalem. Well, this is where that's actually said in verse 11. And uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Okay, right there. That when he says that, it's near to Jerusalem. You, the suspense and the reality is he's near to Jerusalem to suffer and die just like he said he would. In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and we mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Okay? So when uh, the Scripture reminds us that we're going to Jerusalem, we're moving towards the death of Christ. Okay? And then, um, so because he was near to Jerusalem, and at the same time, he's going to suffer and die, but here's what the disciples are thinking. Because they were supposed, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So that's the context for Jesus teaching this parable. He's headed to Jerusalem to die, but the disciples, these things are hidden from them and their blindness, even though Jesus has said them to them repeatedly, they used it to no advantage of their souls and no advantage of the reality of, of what actually is taking place and transpiring in the Messiah. And so they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem and the kingdom in fullness is going to come. And so Jesus says, I better make this a little clearer even for them. And so he tells them a parable. He said, therefore, a nobleman, and the nobleman in the parable is Jesus. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And so they think the kingdom is going to come immediately. And what Jesus is beginning to tell them, he's telling them a parable. You know, that, uh, and this wouldn't have been uncommon for the day that someone of great stature would go somewhere to uh, receive a kingdom of some kind, some dominion, and then return. And in the absence of going to receive a kingdom, and just think about Jesus, what's going to happen? He's going to suffer, die, raise from the dead, ascend, and he's going to be gone. Right? He's going to a far country. He's returning to the right hand of his father. And eventually is going to return. 
So this is the parable, that, the picture that Jesus is setting up for them to understand the kingdom's not going to come in fullness right now. That you, there's going to be a time of waiting. There's, it's it's going to be some time in the distance. So prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for the waiting. For the King to come and return and to establish the fullness of His kingdom. Calling ten of His servants, He gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Now if you have a note there next to the word mina, mina was about three months wages for a laborer. You know, so whatever three months, think about what three months of wages would be for you. I mean, it's not, it's not an insignificant amount that Jesus has given to them. Over in Matthew, it's a talent and not a mina, which is actually a larger significant or a greater significance of money, but he gives them three months, essentially, worth of wages. And he says, engage in business until I come. And then there's this really awful statement in verse 14. You just think about that. He entrusts to them three months' wages to do something with. First of all, who does that? If your boss was leaving, (laughs) you know... More than likely, just saying, more than likely, he's not going to leave and go, well, here's, you know, here's 30K just to each of the employees to try to um, make some good use of it for the company while he's gone for, you know, some unforeseen reason. Who does that? But his citizens, even though he does this, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man to reign over us. And isn't that just the essence of rebellion against God? Now, what Jesus is pointing out here that the essence of our rebellion and the world's rebellion against God is casting off his reign. We do not want Jesus to rule over us. So there's a great tumult. But when he returned, Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In other words, they're being called to account. And before I go any further, the essence of the point of the mina is to understand the blessings and gifts and benefits that Jesus will has dispensed upon his church and his disciples. That's what the mina is. And we are to use them to an advantage until we all are called to account before the Lord Jesus for what we did with what He entrusted to us. And just as the mina was no small thing, how much greater a thing would it be if Jesus just gave us one gift? How much more 
precious and gracious and merciful of Him would it be if, if He just gave us one little gift of administration? If He just gave us one little gift of help? Or one little gift of service? Or any number of the gifts that He has given? You know, how much greater would that gift be in the grace of God than three months' wages? And in His mercy, He's given us these many gifts. He's given us the church of Jesus Christ. And we must make good use of the church of Jesus Christ. He's given us um, spiritual giftings. He's giving us He's given us salvation and the Gospel to make good use of. To grow in godliness. He's given us this Gospel to preach to lost people. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And He does it through the preaching of the Gospel. He's given us things like fatherhood and motherhood and all the responsibilities under the sun that God has given to us. Everyone is a merciful gift from Him to make use of. To be faithful with. Before we're called to account for how we used them. The money to be called to Him that He might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before Him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, it's really important that you kind of, as you read this, you see the grace of God dripping off the page. Because it's going to matter in just a second in these verses. So, Jesus gives him three months' wages, and the guy's faithful with, you know, all ten servants. Each one gets one mina. One of them multiplies them into ten somehow. We know not how. But he engages in some kind of business. Buying and selling turns it into ten. Okay? And um, what happens when Jesus returns, and he's called to account, he says, here's the ten minas, right? And, you know, Jesus says, you've been faithful in a very little thing. You've been faithful to turn one mina into ten minas. Okay, rule over ten cities. As if, as if ruling over ten cities was in proportion to taking one mina and turning it into ten. You realize this is the essence of this is the essence of the gifts we've been given. In some ways. Don't you, don't you just feel like you just have a little? Jesus says you've been in, you were entrusted with a little. So if you were faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with much. So whatever little you have, whatever little gifting you feel like you have, whatever small life in this grand universe you feel like you have, whatever small place in the church of Jesus Christ that you feel like you have, whatever great weaknesses that you constantly bring to the table that make you feel like a small disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, just be faithful with that little. That's all Jesus is actually asking. Just be faithful with the little. And if you're faithful with the little, I'll give you ten cities. (laughs) It's the grace of God. 
exalting the faithful. Those who use what God has given them to advantage for the sake of the Gospel. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And then the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina. He just returns the mina to him. And I want to encourage you to think that the emphasis of the parable is actually right here. It starts right here. The real emphasis of the parable starts right here. And the reason that everything that's now said is really the point is if you think about the context of what's about to happen, right, there's the triumphal entry, but the triumphal entry is like Jesus is riding on a donkey. You thought about that? Here's the king of all kings riding on a donkey. You know what you think of when you drive by a field with a donkey in it? Like, those are funny animals. They make funny noises. They look funny. You know? You, 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 you kind of hee-haw at the hee-haw. Don't you? Right? The donkey, it's a donkey. What king comes riding on a donkey? And so the whole triumphal entry is this kind of, it's, and it's not only that, it's not like all of Israel shows up for the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry is like Jesus' band of followers who are people like Zacchaeus and people like blind Bartimaeus and people like the disciples here who don't even understand what's going on. They're just like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, you know? And they're entirely wrong about what they're saying and entirely right and entirely wrong because they don't understand. They, they actually think the kingdom's coming immediately. But they're right. And it's just a weak, ragtag kind of maybe moment that we think is way more triumphant often than it really is. But it illustrates the weakness and the hiddenness in, in the suffering of Jesus and his, his followers and, and also his love for the outcasts. But then he goes into Jerusalem and then he weeps over Jerusalem because Jerusalem is representative of the nation. In Jerusalem, he weeps over it because they are rejecting him. They are rejecting him. And then he goes in and cleanses the temple. And so here you have um, this third servant being a picture of Israel right in front of Jesus right now. But also a picture of all of the rebellious who have revolted against King Jesus who said, we do not want Him to reign over us across the world at the point when He returns. And so it's both. So another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. So Jesus said, engage in business. This man puts the mina in a handkerchief. Right? So he's indolent. He's lazy. You know, indolence kind of a more insulting word than lazy, but it's, that's what it is. You know, he makes no use 
of the gift God gave him. He revolts against the command of Jesus. And just like the citizens who don't want the nobleman to be king, he says, I don't want, I don't want you to rule over me. And why? Why does he not make use of the mina? He says this, For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. Now, does that sound like Jesus? I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Right? Think about what's already been said. Jesus gave gifts and has given, given gifts to us in His kindness. Jesus gave the mina. And to the one who turned it into ten and the one who turned it into five, Jesus exalted them to a place of rule over ten cities and over five cities. Does that sound like someone who's severe? Overly severe is the idea here, right? For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. But this is the man's self-condemnation. This is actually the way the man is, not the way Jesus is. And this is the way people are. People will often charge God, the lost people will charge God with being overly severe and overly harsh. Listen to the world, the way they mock God. And they will, he's overly severe and overly harsh and, and, and this, this, is their, this is their way to just live as they want to live and cast off his reign from over them. But, I mean, if you had a severe boss... I mean, wouldn't you be afraid enough? You'd want to do something with it? Because right? what's going to happen if I do nothing? <laughs> I better do something. So this isn't about Jesus. This is about the man. And so Jesus says, He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. You know, This is what you think of me. You think I'm a severe man. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Now see, it's really fascinating because Jesus, Jesus is the nobleman, right? And so Jesus is like, I mean, if you just would have put it in the bank and, and just made a little interest. I mean, how much money are you gaining on interest with your money sitting in the bank? I don't even what is the interest rate right now, you know? Point oh 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 one percent it seems like right you know and uh, you know like our kids bank accounts like tick up by like a penny each month <laughs> you know? it's like but that's such a beautiful thing that Jesus says that because even in when he says that if you just would have put it in the bank look you didn't have to be great at engaging in business if you just would have done something and made use of something just just a little bit. Just, just give me back 0.1% of effort. And I just find that so encouraging. Because don't you just feel like so much of your effort in the Christian life is like returning like 0.1%. No, I think my effort is worthy of 10 cities. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the man and points out, no, this is about you and your laziness and your uselessness 
with what I gave to you and entrusted to you. First, that I gave it to you and you didn't deserve. Second, that I just expected you to do a little. To just do a little. And if you just do a little. It's like, don't talk to me anymore about how radical you have to be in order to be a faithful Christian. Why don't you just do a little? Just just make a little advantage of the number of sermons that you hear. Make a little advantage of the church of Jesus Christ as bride and of the relationships and the people that Jesus has saved by His own blood. Make a little advantage of the gifts God has given you. You know, this is such a great word for the proud, success-driven nonsense of our day, which I am just sick and tired of. Just sick and tired of. I'm just so done with it and so over it. Yeah, because unless you're worthy of ten cities, you're worthy of nothing. That's the message. That's really the message in the Christian church today in our pursuit of what? Our pursuit of making our names great, just like the Tower of Babel. That's what our churches have become. Right? Do you want to go to church at the Tower of Babel? Where the real effort is just to make, the, make our names great in the church? It's all good stewardship, we say. Right. Even if you just put it in the bank. Even if you just given back 0.1%. I have no idea what the banking interest was back in that day. I'm kind of, you know, I'm elaborating with modernism to make the point. Maybe they had huge interest rates. Why'd you get me going down that road? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming might have collected it with interest? See, the problem isn't me and my great severity. The problem is you and your indolence and your rejection of my rule over you. You know, this is what a guilty conscience does, right? A guilty conscience always blames the other person. A guilty conscience, because you know what happens when you have a guilty conscience in your work and you know you're you know, not producing what you ought to produce? You actually make your boss out to be more harsh than he is because you feel a constant sense of guilt for your failure. That's what's happening here. Because your conscience is condemning you and you attribute the condemnation of your conscience to your boss. He's an overly severe man. No, you're just guilty. You're just guilty. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And am I coming? I might have collected it with interest. And then here's what Jesus says. And He said to those who stood by, And this this is where Jesus just offends the whole crowd. 
And they said to him, Lord, or take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Now, doesn't that just insult you? (laughs) (laughs) Take the one mina, the guy who just has the one mina guy, who failed to use it entirely. Give it to the guy with ten minas. And all the disciples kind of, <laughs> whoa. That's what they say. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And Jesus says to them, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Remember, one mina to ten minus ten cities. To everyone who has, more will be given in the grace of God. Five minus five cities. Ephesians 2 tells us he's the, of the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness to us that await us. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given but from the one who has not, you know, the one mina that didn't turn into anything, they made no advantage or use of it, but from the one who has not, even what he has, even the little bit that he does have that might be considered nothing in comparison to the others, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus said. But as for these enemies of mine, right, this is becomes this the unfaithful servant here becomes representative of maybe even a, the professing Christian who never makes any advantage of anything God has given becomes representative of the whole kingdom and its citizens, which to us is to understand the whole world. that throws off the reign of Christ. We do not want King Jesus. We do not want King Jesus. But as for these enemies of mine, listen, Jesus has enemies. He has real enemies today. They are spiritual. The spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and all of mankind. All of which we once were, right? For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, Jesus died for us while we were enemies. And all who remain in rebellion against King Jesus at His return, when He calls the world to account, all He says, call, bring them to Me and slaughter them before Me. Slaughter! You say, this is just, this can't be Jesus. It is Jesus. Just think about the nature of what happens between kingdoms. What happens? 
kingdoms war against one another. Kingdoms war against one another. And so what do you have when you have the whole world living in rebellion against King Jesus? Jesus will make war against them to make an end of them. How could he not? How could he not? I don't like the word slaughter. Slay? Would that be better? What do you want? Do you want when Jesus makes war and He comes, as the Scripture says, to make war, to judge in righteousness? Revelation 19. What do you want Him to do? Just carefully, subtly, put everyone to sleep? Think of war. There's a whole revolt against, in the whole world against Jesus. Full of wickedness and evil. No, I mean, just let the child sacrifice continue. Who cares? Who cares? Why would anybody care? Church, do you care? Just, just let it continue forever. No one should ever have to give an account. Right? right? I mean, Bloomington should never have to give an account for fighting to provide for Planned Parenthood, constantly funding Planned Parenthood so that blood runs over in the streets. Maybe, I mean, how far would the rebellion have to go? How far would the sexual rebellion have to go? I mean, does something really happen to happen that's horrible to you and your family personally before you wake up to the reality that Jesus will make war on this wickedness? And all of his enemies he will slaughter. And in this, we shouldn't get all freaked out about the word slaughter. We should say, praise the glory of Jesus Christ who reigns and who is King and who delivers the righteous from all their afflictions. You know, we, we hear things and we kind of then make assumptions so much about reality and we don't understand what Scripture is actually saying. Think about, you know, when Christ returns and calls the whole world into account. And he will come and he will make war and he will conquer and he will judge because his enemies must be dealt with. And we think then about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, what do we think? You've heard about the great banquet, right? There's going to be the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we think is, this is the moment where we all sit down at a table with, you know, and there's this big meal served to us. And, of course, there is, uh, Jesus does talk about that in some places. But when you think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, you think, you know, it's like the bride of Christ finally has this moment of banquet with King Jesus. And I want you to know, that is entirely not what the marriage supper of the Lamb is. 
And this is because we have these like, Jesus is my boyfriend, flittery eyes, <laughs> about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Picture. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord God our, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And that's about where we stop. That's, that's about, as far as our understanding, the marriage supper of the Lamb goes right there. It's like, alright, the bride has made herself ready. Here's the moment for this great banquet meal with Jesus. Right? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And here's the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Here's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and these who worshipped his image. Just think about that. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Birds eating the flesh of all the corpses of the nations because they are slaughtered before King Jesus for their rebellion. (laughs) It's always at the perfect moment, you know. Question. Are you living in rebellion against King Jesus? Does it not wake you up to think about being slaughtered before King Jesus because you don't want him to reign over you? You just want to live your life your way. It's meant as a terrifying warning to all who are living in rebellion against King Jesus right now. It's also meant to stir up holy affections in Jesus' church. To self-examine, some, ask yourself some questions. Am I making good use of the truths 
that I am hearing week in and week out. Am I using the gifts God has given me Am I seeing my responsibility as a wife, as a, as a gift of God to serve Him? I mean, it's a remarkable gift. You get to image Jesus Christ's submission to His Father by being obedient to your husband. Husbands, are you faithful masters of your house? Are you making good use of the authority God has given you for your wife and for your children by being a good father and a benevolent authority in your home? Sometimes it actually does just mean the money that God entrusts to you. Have you used your stimulus check the way God wants you to use your stimulus check? Have you been faithful and generous with it? Or did you just go, man, I've been dreaming about all these things to spend this money on, and now I have it, and now it's all mine. Have some fear of God in your heart and life and make good use of what God has entrusted to you. And if you're still in a place of rebelling against Jesus, you better repent. You better repent. Say, what if I did? And Jesus would just welcome you so quickly with the fullness of forgiveness. The fullness of forgiveness for all your sins so immediately, so graciously. Think of the ten minas turning into ten cities. Think of a million mercies for a thousand of your sins. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Oh God, our hearts tremble before the judgment of Jesus Christ. Jesus, just be our hiding place. Savior from your judgment. May we find refuge under the foot of the cross. And call lost people to yourself. Call rebels to yourself, just as we have each been except for your grace raising us from the spiritual dead, turning enemies into faithful servants. Save lost people through the preaching of your gospel, through the ministry of your church here, we pray. And may even the fear of God that we feel today be made good use of in our pursuit of the likeness of Christ and holiness after your holiness and righteousness after your righteousness. 
Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that this is your purpose in us, to sanctify us according to God's will. We praise you. You are, Lord Jesus, the King and the great judge of all the earth.